When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. That cold case you're listening to? Nasty stuff. But you know what else is a crime? Missing even a moment of whatever you're doing to go on a drink run. Luckily, there's Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery. With Drizzly, you can compare prices on the biggest selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered in under 60 minutes. So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. Hi, this is Wadi Wachtel. You're listening to Pantheon Podcasts. Pantheon Podcasts presents Deeper Digs with host and rock and roll archaeologist Christian Swain. Music. Culture. Technology. And rock and roll. Now, on with the show. Hey, Joe. Where are you going with that gun in your hand? Hey, hey, diggers. Another edition of Deeper Digs. And this is part two of our salute to Jimi Hendrix that will conclude with the November 27th birthday bash. Yeah, don't forget about Friday, November 27th at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Kiss the Sky presents a live stream of their annual Jimi Hendrix birthday bash direct from the historic Bearsville Theater in Woodstock, New York. Go see why Rolling Stone magazine has said yes. Believe the hype. This show lives up to it. And why Access TV crowned Kiss the Sky featuring left-handed guitar virtuoso Jimmy Blue, the world's greatest tribute to Jimi Hendrix. Kiss the Sky recreates Hendrix's most iconic concert moments in full replica wardrobe and gear so well that they have had the honor of playing with all the surviving members of Hendrix's own bands, including Billy Cox and uh, one of our guests today, uh, Gerardo Velez. Check out BearsvilleTheater.com or at Kiss the Sky uh, Tribute, Kiss the Sky Tribute pages on Facebook for more information. All right. See you there. All right. We have two more Hendrix aficionados with us today. Carmine Apice and Gerardo Velez, who I just told you about, is coming right up. Business first will be quick. The big news this week is that the awesome boys over at Decibel Geek have joined the Pantheon Network. Launched in April of 2011, Chris Sinzak, a former rock journalist, started the podcast and soon after decided to bring in a co-host to add more variety. Enter Aaron Camaro. Aaron, a veteran of rock radio from the state of Wisconsin, joined the show in August of 2011. And the show has been a weekly audio download stream focusing on rock and metal music ever since. 
The Decibel Geek podcast is regularly consumed by tens of thousands of listeners who love rock and metal music. In 2017, the podcast surpassed 1 million downloads and continues to go strong. Decibel Geek has been regularly ranked in the top 200 uh, and what's hot sections of music podcasts in iTunes, as well as featured in uh, Nashville scene uh, uh, in August of 2017. Um, love this show. Plus, these guys are responsible for putting together the Rock and Pod Expo every year in Nashville. Well, every year except this year, but we are crossing our fingers for 2021, and you can bet Pantheon Podcast will be there in force. Very excited to have Chris and Aaron as a part of the team. If you haven't checked out Decibel Geek before, please do. Uh, if you want more info uh, on uh, the Rock and Pod, go to Nashville Rock and Pod Expo.com. Okay, other than a sweet thank you to our Patreon fans and members who give every month, we are set to go. Of course, if you ever want to become a contributing member yourself, just go to PantheonPodcast.com, click on the Support the Shows, where you can find links to Patreon, Public for swag, or you can just buy us a quick cup of coffee. All right, let's do it. Let's get to some more Jimi Hendrix. Hey! Okay, two more big-time Hendrix guys. One who played with Jimmy at Woodstock, Gerardo Velez, uh, will be joining us in just a bit. But first up is someone who supported him on tour and was a dear friend, the legendary Carmine Apice. Carmine is another of those Zelig-like characters in rock and roll. I mean, he's just everywhere. First and foremost, he was the drummer of the hugely influential Vanilla Fudge back in the 60s, a band known predominantly for their slow, extended, heavy rock arrangements of contemporary hit songs, most notably You Keep Me Hanging On, uh, which was featured in uh, Quentin Tarantino's last film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. We talk a little bit about that, but also great versions of Ticket to Ride and Eleanor Rigby. Check out the snare work on Eleanor Rigby, I'm I'm telling you. Uh, This is where the heavy comes from, the vanilla fudge, for the metal uh, of later years, which Carmine says doesn't actually come together until Metallica. Interesting. Well, we'll talk about that, too. Let me tell you, Diggers, so many legends point to Carmine as their inspiration. When both Bonzo and Pert cite you as an influence, (laughs) yeah, you're... uh, Uh, You're settled uh, in the pantheon of drummer gods, that is for sure. You know, interestingly, the Fudge has not been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and we do get into that uh, a bit. Um, Did I say interesting? I meant travesty, yes. But Carmine is not just a heavy drummer, though he swears he plays the same no matter the gig. After the Fudge, 
He begins Cactus with Fudge bassist Tim Bogert. Uh, again, a short-lived band, but a long history of influence. And Cactus does come back now and again, uh, including a tour just last year. Uh, so does the Fudge, for that matter. Um, the the Bogart and uh, Carmine hookup uh, continues with Beck. Uh, that's Jeff Beck uh, for Beck, Bogart, and, P- and a piece, which gave us uh, just one studio uh, album and one live album. In 1977, the drummer finds himself in uh, old singer of the Beck group, Rod Stewart's band, at peak Rod. Uh, disco beats and all. Carmine co-authors Do You Think I'm Sexy and Young Turks. In uh, 83, he's in Ozzy's touring band for a short stint before being fired by Sharon. Yeah, we'll talk about that, too. Uh, Since then, he continues to play with any and all legends of the rock world. Really, just too many to mention. It's one of those CVs that's a mile long. In 2005, he became a supporter of our dear friends at Little Kids Rock, and now he has his own show, uh, his own YouTube show, I should say, with drummer brother Vinny apiece. Hmm. Maybe they should be on Pantheon. Uh, I don't know. Okay. Uh, I give you Diggers Carmine apiece. Carmine to peace. Welcome uh, to Deeper Digs. Uh, how you doing today? I'm good. Very good. How you doing? Uh, you know, we're all surviving. Uh, yes, lots of things surviving. going on. Uh, it's been a crazy year. So, you know, I got to ask first, you know, what, what's, what's been your COVID-19 plan uh, over the last eight months? Well, so? I moved from uh, L.A. last June. I saw my house. My kids and family are still there. And I moved more towards the East Coast where my girlfriend, the radio chick, Leslie Cole, been living. We had a house in Connecticut that we were in, and we sold it during COVID. And we bought this house in Florida last year, and it was being renovated. And then we had to move here. So we moved to Florida. Oh, wow. At the end That's of May. a big deal. Okay. Yeah. So we moved to Florida. We had to pack up the house and everything, and which is great, though, because I, I have a studio here with, with drums in it and recording uh, devices, and I've been recording uh, a new instrumental solo album down here. I did a project with my brother. Uh-huh. I did a modern drummer festival from from my studio. I'm shooting videos tomorrow because we're re-releasing all of my drum books uh, with modern drummer uh, publications, and we're we're digitizing everything so you can buy it physically and and digitally. And I'm doing videos for Amazon that's going to be sh- you know on Amazon around the world. Yeah, and this Sell is an update to the realistic rock drum method that realistic was first drum. published in 1972, yes. right? Yes. Yeah. Now it's sold uh, 450,000 units, and uh, and we're planning to sell a lot more. They're going to be doing it in a few different languages, and uh, it's all happening while I'm here. Right. You know? Right. Right. And, and uh, yeah, it's great. I mean, I even did a documentary for Viacom in the studio 
that's going to be out called, uh, I think it's something like about the songs and they did like Metallica and Police, Madonna, and they did Rod Stewart. And the two songs they're talking about, Do You Think I'm Sexy and Young Turks? Which, which you played on, yeah, yeah. Well, I wrote, I oh. wrote them both. I oh, I didn't know that, okay. Yeah, and I played on them and they had a camera crew come here and we set up and I had Zoom guys from the UK Mm -hmm. you know, he asked me questions and we, we did like a five hour video shoot that's coming out in December in the UK on BBC TV. Nice. And and I did with, with my new instrumental album, I did a reggae rock version of Do You Think I'm Sexy instrumentally. Oh, right. Okay. So that's gonna, awesome. So I'm going to try and get that out at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. In the UK, especially because every, seems everyone that releases Do You Think I'm Sexy in the UK makes the chart somewhere. <laughs> You know? so, well, that must be nice. It come, it, it's a it's a constant comeback, huh? Yeah, and I'm talking to Yes's manager. It's his label, and he's really knocked out by the material we got. And and uh, so I'm I'm excited. So I've been doing that. I did stuff with my brother. We did a track together, and uh, we're working on a new track for my drum was with him. You know, and uh -huh. a new drum a Peace Brothers album, and and. Things are happening, you know. And so I haven't so really, played a gig since February. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but you've been busy, so you figured out a way to 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 make uh, the COVID thing uh, not you know affect you as much as it has so many others, yeah. well, especially with lucky. the touring I, business you know, being gone. I, I mean, I've been lucky. I, I I I had a lot of hits. I was involved in hits, and I had Vanilla Fudge. You know, last the end of last year was in that Quentin Tarantino movie. We got paid good money for that. We got oh, once upon things. a time in Hollywood, right? Yeah, we have yeah. the last six minutes was hanging on. Yeah, that's you know, right. That song never dies. That song <laughs> never dies. We just got another thing from uh, hanging on for a uh, a documentary, a snowboarding uh, documentary. You know, so we got all that and dealing up sexy royalties, and you know, I mean. Um, I'm, you know, I'm old. I'm 74 years old in, in December. So I'm on yeah, don't look Social it. Security. Yeah. <laughs> I got my pensions. I got, you know, all the different pensions from the unions I was in all my life. And, yeah. You know, so financially, I'm all right. I own real estate. You know, I've got you know, real estate I do as a, as a secondary kind of business. And I love real estate. I'm actually going to write a book called Rock and Real Estate. And all my real estate experiences. That sounds interesting. Yeah. What, what's yeah. it like? Okay. I got to ask, what's it like when uh, a client, you know, uh, hires you and doesn't know that you're Carmine a piece and you show up uh, to show a house? Well, I don't show houses. See, I just invest in them. Oh, okay. Okay. See, okay. I, so I just invest in houses. Like we have a bunch of houses in Memphis. We have a place in St. Martin. You know, okay. Okay. Rent. Okay. You know, I have a duplex in Florida, but mm. I don't show up there. But I do, I, I mean, when, I, if, when I'm buying like the duplex, I showed up, mm -hmm. yeah, but it was empty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but, but I, I did, you know, I read the audited deal by Trump years ago. Uh -huh. and, and in the book, it said, use your celebrity if you have it. Yeah, so I sure. use it. I use it when I have to. Right, like of When course. I go down to <laughs> Memphis and I, I visit the management company mm -hmm. who manages my houses, I bring CDs and, you know. Nice. Right, bring, right, right. Yeah, you know, books and CDs uh, and drumsticks yeah. autographed and pictures. Gre grease the skids and, a little bit, right. And I grease everybody. Yeah, know? of course. And, of I got, course. and then I got some fans that were, you know, own an air conditioning company. And because of that, I would get him like a, a gold record, you know, a nice. fudge. And then nice. my friend, and he yeah. does better deals for me in fixing my air conditioning, you know, stuff like that, you know. Yeah. 
Well, but I me, always loved real estate. I always loved it. That's that's a little side gig. Uh, yeah. uh, we might have to get you on one of our other shows called Side Jams, uh, that's hosted by Brian Reisman, a well-known journalist out of New York, uh, and cool. he just talks about everybody's hobbies. What not the music, but what do they do outside of music? And obviously, yeah. real estate's yeah, a big gig that. for you. We can do that. So, you know, let's let me take you back to uh, the 1960s and uh, Vanilla Fudge. Um, yeah. uh, you know, uh, you know, you guys are considered, you know, one of the, uh, uh, if not, you know, inventors, the precursors of what we might call hard rock or even heavy metal uh, these days. And, you know, well, we used uh, to call it heavy, not metal. We just heavy, call it right. heavy music. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So how, how did that come about? Uh, you know, I think you were asked to join the band uh, uh, even before um, Tim Bogart was in the band, right? No, no, no. I was the last one in. Well, you were the last one. You know, Tim and Mark came to see me play and they were going to try this new stuff that was going on in New York called production numbers. That was originated by Leslie West Band, the Bagels. Okay, okay. Okay, and, and the model for it a bit was the Rascals. Because the Rascals were a New York band that used to play around and everybody knew them yep. before they made it. Yep. And I used to see them playing in clubs and they were awesome. Mm -hmm. So when they asked me to join, they said they, they had a drummer, but he couldn't cut it. They needed somebody more technical and had a good right foot that was more R&B and could sing. So that was me. Yeah. Uh, but I had another band that was doing great, you know. And matter of fact, that other band was a band that played opposite this other guy named Jimmy James in a club. <laughs> and that's right. when I met Hendrix. Yeah, you know? let's talk about that. So, so he, was he... Playing, he was playing in, in a band. He had his hair slicked back. He always wore outrageous outfits, played with his teeth. Yeah. Played the same kind of guitar as my guy in my band named Ronnie Lejack. They had the thin strings, they bent thing, they had distortion boxes. Him and Jimi Hendrix and another guy called The Wizard were the only guys in New York that played like that. And we played eight, one gig with Jimmy, and uh, it was a four nights a week gig, though. You know, you play four or five nights a week. Yeah. We played 30 minutes and he played 30 minutes. So when you do that with a band, you get to know the people. Right, know? right, hanging so out. So we got right. to know him. We used to go up in black prostitutes' apartments in the area, it was a bad area. The mm -hmm. Upper West Side was bad at the time. Remember that movie, Panic and Needle Park? That's what it was. Yeah. Drug addicts, hookers, you know, dealers. Yeah, like, like Alphabet alcoholics, City. Alcoholics. Uh, yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, it was bad. Yeah. So we went and this, this chick's apartment was smoking a joint, and, and Jimmy's talking about making it. Myself, I didn't really care about making it. I just want to make right. a living in drums. Yeah. I didn't want to work a day job, <laughs> you know? So I tried that, and it didn't work, and I was playing pretty constantly. So that's the band I was playing with when I was asked to join Vanilla Fudge, which were called The Pigeons. Mm -hmm. But we got to know Jimmy. I got to know Jimmy in those days. Yeah. And then so when they asked me to join, I said, well, I'm really happy with my band. I'm making good money. They said, well, at least come down and check it out. We have this manager, Phil Basile, who's I didn't know at the time was connected to the mafia. Matter of fact, Goodfellas. Well, the guys he was connected to, Henry oh, Hill, yeah. used to come to my house and sell me stuff out of the trunk, trunk of his car. They come on, I got the stuff that just fell off a truck, you know? You bet. That was the people who were backing Vanilla Fudge. And he said, they'll pay us a salary, you know? And we all we got to do is create the music and try and make it. I said, oh, I'll go check them out. So I went and checked them out, and they were awesome. Mark was an amazing singer, a great keyboard player. Tim Bogle, I never heard anyone play bass like that. 
Right. He was a great singer too. And Vinnie Martell was a really good guitar player, a great voice. Mm -hmm. And I fit right in there because when I was young, I used to sing doo-wop. So I had the vibrato like Mark Stein had, they all had. Right. So our vibratos matched. And I, so I joined. I got paid a salary of a hundred bucks a week while we created all the music. And then uh, we just played and we just played and we played clubs and we rehearsed and played, made new arrangements. And then we had, you keep me hanging on as one of the arrangements. Yeah, and we, I was gonna and go we always there. noticed whenever we played that song, people would stop trying to dance us, which was hard anyway, because <laughs> our music was all over the place. And they would come up and watch us play because we were really a theatrical crazy band. You know, with the, with, you know, if you look at us on the Ed Sullivan show, you saw how crazy we were. Right, right. So for that time, really, really over the top. Right. Night sticks and yeah. beating the hell out of drums. No drummers did that, you know. Yeah. Vinny and, and Tim up front were moving like lunatic. It was an act. It was not just it was, a, it was a, a bunch of musicians standing up there playing. There was, it but was we got uh, it was into it yeah. because we got into the music. And what we did with yeah. the songs, like you keep <laughs> hanging on. When first started, set me free, why don't you be? You know, yeah, Holland Dozer, Holland Dozer, Holland. Uh, but the lyric, uh, the lyric from, from message Motown. of that yeah. would be called as a very hurting song. Yeah. You know, it's very hurting emotionally when you're in that position in the love situation, you're hurting. Yeah. You know, you're depressed yeah. and everything. So we tailored the music to be hurting mm -hmm. music down. Slowed it down, right. Depressed, mm -hmm. slowed it down, made really set emotion into those lyrics. And that's what we did with everything. People get ready. It was like a gospel song. We turned it into a church song. Right. Organ right. and the vocal. Eleanor Rigby. Yeah. What did we do there? We we made it into an eerie church, you know, churchyard cemetery kind of vibe. Mm -hmm. and that's what we did. You darkened it. You darkened it. We darkened it. everything. Yeah. And, we, yeah. and we put the moods of the lyrics into the mood of the music. Right, right. And that's right. what we did. And... You know, we cut you keep me hanging on in the one one take demo mono everything at once yeah yeah i said it was seven and a half minutes of my that changed my life yeah that, I, i'm that sure it demo. did yeah that was the demo and then we went on the radio and atlantic heard it on the radio and they signed us they changed our name and uh you know shadow morton produced it so he got it on the radio with scott muni and murray decay you know, and WOR was the first underground oh, station in right. New York. Yeah, FM. And that's yep. when all this underground FM station yep. was just starting to come up. And you could and do they, those seven-minute songs and things yeah, like that. And yeah, and they, they played it in a contest, like Rate the Record. And then we were up against the Beatles and the Beach Boys and all the big acts, and we'd always win. You know, nice. They call in, and we constantly win. That's why Atlantic signed us. Uh, it's a great version, of, uh, you know. And yeah. uh, as as you said, uh, when we first uh, started here, you know, it just recently was used uh, to end uh, the Quentin Tarantino movie, uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah, so, and it was uh, also used in the final episode of Sopranos three times. Yeah, and, and many many other movies. Oh yeah, that's that, that's a staple. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah Somebody always pulls done. that out every couple of years. Definitely. It's, it's yeah. amazing. You know? Yeah, and, yeah, and that gives us royalties and. Yeah. And, you know, and it gives us other stuff that other things have happened. You know, I mean, for me, I've had all. Oh, a huge career. The only band I haven't had, uh, like, uh, Fudge's in radio. I mean, uh, TV and movies. And BBA was in TV and movies. And and uh, Rod Stewart with the sexy and hot legs. And oh, yeah. All in different TV and movies. And, 
you know, but ne never a cactus, uh, unfortunately. But, you know, so yeah. it's been great. So that's yeah. why, you know, I'm still here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and still doing fine and doing okay yeah. during during COVID. Yes. Thank God. Yeah. So, yes. um, so Jimmy James, uh, who you got to know before he, yes. you know, busted out and became uh, uh, Jimi Hendrix. Yeah. Um, I think uh, the next time you saw him was in London uh, at uh, the Speakeasy. Yes, and yes. Uh, and you guys kind of recognized each other, huh? You, well, he didn't recognize me. Uh, I recognize him because when he came out in America, we were, you know, Vanilla Fudge, and we were yeah. doing very good. And we, we were, you know, he's looking at Rolling Stone or whatever the rock magazines or whoever would print stuff about rock. And I saw a picture of this guy, Jimi Hendrix, playing his guitar with his teeth. And I said, whoa, except now he had the electric hair. <laughs> You know, not slick not back. slick back like Little Richard, but yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And, and more he, the more natural, right? Yeah, but but I I said, whoa, who's this guy? I, that looks like it could be Jimmy James. I said to myself. So then, as we started reading up on it, we realized it was him. So when we did go to London, we were playing there, and I saw him in the London Speakeasy. Speakeasy had a, a restaurant in it, and I was at the bar, and I saw Jimmy in the restaurant. So I went in there and I said to him, Jimmy, how you doing? Come on, I'm from New York. I used to play with you, opposite you in a band in Uptown at the Lighthouse, you know, and you were Jimmy James and, and the Blue Flames and I was in the band called Thursday's Children. He said, yeah, I kind of remember that. I said, yeah, we smoked some pot together and you were looking over Broadway talking about how you're going to make it. Well, you made it. Yeah, you did. <laughs> he, said, yeah. he goes, so what are you doing here? I said, well, I play with Vanilla Fudge. He goes, man, I love the fudge. Oh, that's I nice. Said, oh. I said, wow, cool, man. I said, yeah. so we both made it. I, I, you know, I distinctly remember that night you know, we were smoking that joint and he wanted to make it. And I really didn't care if I made it. But now here we are. We both made it. We're both on the charts. We're both in London. And you're playing London next week. You're playing... Uh, the Savile Theatre, we're playing it the week after with The Who. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we were in England for about three weeks, you know. Yeah, and, that, Sa uh, that Savile Theatre uh, concert was, uh, that's legendary. That's, that's where the Beatles yeah. all showed up uh, and yeah. Jimmy walks out and, and, and plays uh, Surgeon Pepper uh, yeah. in front of them when the album had just come out like a day before yeah. or something. Yeah, and we, uh, and, uh, we played there, we saw The Who, we played there with The Who, we blew The, off, the Who off that night. All the all the reviews were like Vanilla Fudge blew them off. I was like, whoa, you know? <laughs> yeah. Awesome, well, that's you know? that's quite an act to try to blow off the stage. Uh, they, yeah, they were they yeah. were rather incendiary at that time uh, as well. They were well. good. They were they were yeah. good band. Yeah, yeah. And we saw yeah. Hendrix there. He was awesome. You know, people yeah. went nuts over him. It was the first time they saw him in England. Yeah. And uh, they went nuts over him. And, uh, and then we continued the, the, the relationship. And then 1968. Yeah, you guys toured. Right? Yeah, 1968, uh, because the first time Hanging On came out in July 67, it only went to number seven, mm. uh, 70. But the album came out in September and went from number 200 to number 33, and then eventually made the top four. And we were the first band to ever get a top four album, top 10 album, without having a smash single. Right. Oh, okay. Right? And that's mm -hmm. when we went on in 68, the Ed Sullivan Show. Right. Right. So it, so so in '68 the album was top ten, but then we did another album, 
and it came out in like March or April, the second album, and that really screwed mm -hmm. up our whole career because it was a bad move, you know, the album. The beat goes on, it was a concept album, shouldn't have been. Should have done what we did on the first album, which we didn't. And uh, it's kind of blew it. So we had to right. do another album together of originals and Season of the Witch was on that one. And that became a, somewhat of a Oh, single. yes. So, so we had three yep. albums on the charts, you know, and then Atlantic decided to re-release You Keep Me Hanging On. And then you Keep Me Hanging On, as the other albums were starting to go up the charts, went up to top 10 and brought the first album back up to top 15. And the, and the Renaissance album was top 20. And The Beat Goes On was like somewhere in the 70s, you know. And then we went on tour with Hendrix. And I remembered many, many times when we oh, partied. Oh, Electric, electric, electric Lady Land. Yeah. 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 And we partied a lot with, uh, with Noel and Mitch because, you know, Jimmy was at a point where you could, he really couldn't go out. He was a big, big giant star. Yeah, yeah. he was a big, yeah. it was his image over everything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, we would rent boats like in San Diego. We played San Diego Stadium. We only played to 25% of the stadium. You know, that's you know, when you were big. That's what, oh, that, that was, that's that what was, meant that big back big. then. That was yeah. big. That <laughs> yeah. would hold uh, 40,000 people, and we played to 10, 12,000 people. You yeah, know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because I think the arena at the time only held 7,500. You know, it was an outdoor mm -hmm. show. And we, we, there was a lake near the hotel, and we, were, we would rent these little motorboats, like uh, rowboats with motors on them. And, and Mitch and Noel and Ron, me and Tim were in the other, and we'd crash into each other and just have a great oh, old bump, time. Bumper cars with the boats. Yeah, yeah, we had a great old time. But then, then at that, that night at the gig, we had a great gig. And, you know, and there were many nights we blew Jimmy off the stage, according to the press, on that tour, too, because mm -hmm. the band was really hot, you know? And oh Jimmy yeah! Was hot. Oh, Vanilla what Fudge I, is a what is I a remember hot was walking after we we were up watching Jimmy for a while, and then we started walking back to the dressing room. This was an oval-shaped stadium, so we played to this part of the stadium, like over right. here, and we had to walk well back here to the dressing rooms. So as I'm walking, he started Voodoo Child with the Wawa, and it was yeah. echoing around all the empty seats on both sides, oh, wow. filling in stereo. It sounded unbelievable, you know? And then uh -huh. he went into the song and it was echoing around the seats. Now we had to leave, so we had, that's why we were going back to the, to the dressing room. But then on that same tour, I think we were in Seattle. Now, Mark Stein says we were somewhere else, but I think it was Seattle. Yeah, and hometown Jimmy, for Jimmy. Yeah, and Jimmy was like just releasing, getting the, he just got the demos of the mastering for Electric Lady. And we, he had a record player in his room. So he invited all of us up to his room to listen to the record, to get our reaction kind of, you know? Right, right. So we heard Electric Lady Land for the very first time with Jimmy in his room. And he sat in the corner like very, he was a very timid guy. You know, a very timid guy, he sat in the corner and just watched everyone's reaction. Everybody was like, yeah, wow, this is awesome. Everyone's freaking out. And, you know, he could, I mean, he said, a nice smile on his face. And, and uh, you know, that was, those were the two really big things that, that uh, stuck in my head, except for the Hollywood Bowl. Here's a quick word from our sponsors. We'll be back in a bit.
And now back to the program. We played the Hollywood Bowl and uh, our guitar player took acid before we went on stage. Okay. So in the solo uh, came for unless, unless you're in the Grateful Dead, probably not a good idea. Not a good idea. <laughs> we had 40 minutes to play for uh, 45, whatever we had, an hour, I don't know what we had to play. Right, right. But his solo and shotgun was supposed to be like two minutes, three minutes long. It was 15 minutes <laughs> and we couldn't get him to stop. And then while we were on, people were freaking out. They loved it. They were jumping in at the time. The Hollywood Bowl had a, a you know, had a, a fountain filled with water, you know. Oh, in front of the stage. In front of the right. stage. Yeah, that's right. Which they ended up covering it after this gig. Because it had lights in it and shit. Oh, electricity and, people, people and water were and people. In, were jumping in there to yeah. try and get closer to the fudge while we were on, you know, and it created a big hassle. So between him going overboard and the people jumping in there, we had a, a great show, but a screwed up kind of show too, because it put everything behind. They got to get the people out of the water. And then they had to put cops around the front so people wouldn't jump in the water when Jimmy was on. You know, and I got pictures of me hanging out on the side of the stage with Mitch and Noel. You know, when I was like 24 years old, I got my shirt open, I'm skinny, looking good, you know. And, and Noel and Mitch were hanging out with me. And, you know, it was really, it was Those a great time for great us times. and a great time to, to tour yeah. with Hendricks because that's when he was at his peak. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, the 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 business hadn't started uh, really wearing on yeah. him. Uh, the yeah. changes. I mean, it was still the experience uh, there. Uh, you know, uh, it's it's. You know, we all know it's a sad tale uh, yeah. how it ends. And, yeah, uh, and then you know, and then 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 the, that band broke up. They all left, yeah. and they got yeah. Billy Cox, and then Billy Cox, uh, and then uh, and Buddy Miles, and, uh, yeah, and Buddy Miles came in. I remember yeah. the first gig they recorded live at the Fillmore East. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Buddy Miles and I, that we were at that gig, and I remember the outfit Jimmy had on. It was like this really colorful thing. It went like this in different colors, all the way down, shirt and pants, and, and you know we went backstage and hung out with them before they went on. After they went on, so ah, yeah, I did all that stuff. And Buddy was like, Buddy always liked me because he always loved Vanilla Fudge, and he'd yeah. always come and give me a hug, and you disappear with Buddy when he hugs you. <laughs> You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially a skinny, skinny little white guy like you. Huh? Yeah, yeah. At the time, I was skinny. I was like 150 pounds, you know. And then, you know, he opened up Electric Lady, and then we started Cactus, and we recorded mm -hmm. uh, the second album there. But we did our very first gig with Cactus with Jimi Hendrix. You did? Yeah, you at did. a festival yeah. in Philadelphia. And mm -hmm. Jim McCarty, our guitar player, was in the Buddy Miles Express. Mm -hmm. And Jimmy oh, okay. produced that album. Uh -huh. So Jimmy Picardi knew Hendrix really well. We knew Hendrix really well, me and Tim. And, you know, so we, we, we hung out at that festival. And, and the very last gig that Hendrix did was the Isle of Wight. That's right. Yeah. And we were with him at that. You were. At that. We, was Cactus, that the... Cactus played there and we stayed, we stayed the three days. And the night he went on, uh, we were there. We were, you know, Jimmy, our Jimmy and, and Hendrix were backstage playing acoustic guitars together. And then our Jimmy, Hendrix, our Jimmy McCarty stayed with Hendrix in London for a couple mm -hmm. of days. Then he went home and two days later, Jimmy was found dead. Yeah, that, that must have really hurt when you yeah, got that. Yeah, and it news, was, huh? uh, for us, it was like, oh my God. 
you know, because, you know, we, we knew him really well. Yeah. Horrible accident. Really, um, really well. You know, just too many, uh, too many uh, substances all at one time, I, yep. I think is yep. the, the end result. And, um, and you know, you a, never knew, sometimes that, you uh, never knew what the substance is. Like you go no. play at a festival, you drink some of the punch, you had acid in it. Right, right. You no, know, right. or you have some of the wine had acid. I mean, it's terrible. It got to the point where I stopped drinking anything that wasn't like you didn't an know. open can. Yeah. yeah. You know? I mean, same yeah. thing with cactus that we played the Puerto Rico festival. You know, we, we drank some of the wine and it was a spike with mescaline. You know, Oof. we were up for yeah. 12 hours. We went on the next afternoon. You know, so we went on. Yeah. We were still, still, still messed up. You know? Yeah, there's a time and place for all things. Oh, and, man. Uh, I mean, you always remember those that. are before the music business became the music business. Yeah, yeah. You know? yeah Way yeah. before that. Yeah, yeah. It was just fun. So we all recorded albums. We all toured. Everybody had a record deal. It wasn't like nobody looking for a No, it wasn't deal. competition. It was, no, uh, it was, it was collaborative. We had a good time. Yeah. I mean, I remember when yeah. we were recording down in uh, Electric Ladyland. So Jimmy would go in and we'd be in the main room. He'd be in the back room. He'd come in, say yeah. hi. We'd say hi. And we'd go and listen to him, you know. Yeah. And, and even when Jimmy died and Mitch was recording a Cry of Love album, mm -hmm. right? Uh, Mitch was re-recording all the drums, you know, at, at Electric Ladyland. You know, but it had Jimmy's vibe everywhere, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. So 50 years on, um, you know, since we lost him to the Angels, um, you know, why, why do you think he's still so relevant? Because he was amazing. He was an innovator. I just did a, a I just did a two hours ago and same a documentary about Eddie Van Halen. Yeah. Yeah. And, who's and, who's and, probably and, the only other and, guy that fits in that category. Well, there's Jeff Beck is in there. Yeah. You know? Yeah. There's Jeff Beck in there and, you know, Jimmy Page, Clapton, they're in there. I mean, th those are the those are the guys. Yeah. You know, yeah. Hendrix, Clapton, you know, Eddie Van Halen. And I think between all of them, they influence everybody. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, same with like drummers. There's certain drummers, you know, that uh, I was involved with. Oh, well, like you know, yourself, you've been you yeah. you've been uh, name checked many times by uh, many greats yeah. who, who, who yeah. have and, come and after you. Know, you. It's funny. I look at it in, in levels of when it started. I, I count myself in the first level that was in with Dino Donnelly, Mitch Mitchell, Ginger Baker, and Keith Moon. That was that level. Right. 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 Mm -hmm. And then Dino kind of fell out, and that was the only American left. And then the next level was like Ian Pace, John Bonham. Uh, Don Brewer, you know, that level. Then 72 came the Jazz Rockers, Billy Cobham, Lenny right, White, right. all those guys. You know, and then the next level came with like the, the police, Alex Van Halen. Stuart, uh, Neil, Neil Peart, uh, Stuart Neil Copeland, Peart. And, and people yeah, like that. that. Level, yeah. You know? yeah, 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 yeah. But together, we influenced everybody. Yeah, yeah. That's where it is with guitars. But, but Jimmy was the first. But the difference with Jimmy was, Jimmy came out and he influenced everything, the fashion, mm -hmm. the playing, the, uh, the stage persona, you know, everything. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. it was the first black guy to do that. Yeah. Yeah. To, to, to not uh, go the, the more traditional, like uh, gospel R &B soul R&B way. Right. Right. And, yeah. you know, I mean, he, he was like Bo Diddley. Yeah. Bo Diddley was kind of like that. Yeah. Chuck, Chuck Bo was, uh, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, those two guys were like that, but they weren't technically great players. No, not like Jimmy Jimmy, was a great player. I mean, come on, he played upside down. Yeah, he learned upside down. That that alone was an innovation. Yeah, yeah. that nobody's ever done before. Now you have um, a a few guys play like that now. Yeah, yeah. But he was Uh, the first, and uh, and he, you know, he turned it into a big act like what you guys were doing uh you know as, yeah. as, as you were saying earlier about the vanilla fudge that this was more than just musicians standing up there doing their thing it was yes. it was a show it was let's put it, it, it but it was integrated with the music it was it, yeah. it wasn't like yeah. a steps or anything but it was like a total feel and in and per, uh putting that vibe off into the audience yeah and in that time 67 the english fans were king yeah, yeah, well, British Invasion, yeah. And, and they used to just stand there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? So, I mean, he made it big in England because... He didn't just stand he there. He didn't stand there. <laughs> right, right. But he learned that in New York. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Playing all those clubs. Yeah. And yeah. that's where we learned. Yeah, yeah. You know? But the British bands just stood there. Even Jeff Beck, as great as he is, you know, he did a couple of cool guitar moves, but back in those days, you know, he just stood there. Yeah, yeah. Clapton stood there. Yeah. You know? Well, if you, if you, Townsend, if you see Townsend, those, yeah. that was, Townsend's the only guy he stood there, but he did this. The, the, yeah. The, I just lost my headset. <laughs> the the, he, uh, the he wave. Least, right, you know right, what I'm saying? Right, 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 right. The windmills. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and, and Keith Moon was something to look at. Yeah. You know, he was twirling sticks and all that. Yeah. But, you know, Ginger Baker was, you know, he was nothing to look at. No, no. No. Yeah, yeah, just but he played great. Yep, yeah. And the cream was a playing band. Yeah, you know? yeah. And that's where Vanilla Fudge ended up being a pl- a playing band and visual band. Hendrix was a playing band and a visual band. Mm-hmm. You know? And and Jeff Beck group ended up being a playing band and a visual band. Yeah. Because Roddy yeah. Wood and Rod Stewart together with Jeff was oh, a yeah. real yeah great band. Yeah, you know? something to band. see. Yeah, definitely. So you know, rock and roll now is gosh, north of 70 years old now, you know, it's crazy. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's still, it's still thought of, I mean, you know, it, you know, I, I actually kind of started what I'm doing here uh, about five years ago. Cause I felt like uh, rock and roll was dying. It was about, it was, maybe it had run its course. Maybe this was it. So I wanted to get as much of it as I could and express as much of it as we could and show uh, yeah. everybody. But it seems to be making a, a return here. I mean, you know, I don't know if you've uh, caught some of these kids that are doing like these TikToks or, uh, uh, you know, Dreams, uh, you know, a song that just recently got back into the top 10 after, you know, 43 years. Uh, there's these twins uh, on YouTube that listen to uh, uh, to songs, classic rock songs for the first time. And they freaked out on uh, um, uh, In the Air. Uh, uh, by Phil Collins and yeah. and that took put that song. So what, what do you think of all this? Well, well, I mean, I'm producing a young band called Kodiak. Mm-hmm. They're from New Jersey. The brothers are, are drummer, guitar player, unbelievable, big, gigantic fans of Van Halen. They're like a young Van Halen. Right? Yeah. As a matter of fact, yeah. we're going, we're going, we're going to LA uh-huh. uh, next month to be in a new TV show called No Cover. It's going to be on Prime, and uh, the label that is interested in signing them is they're running this show and said they want them on the show, you know, to get some exposure. And they're really good. So they're, I mean, they're, so, I, so they're like Greta really Van good. Fleet or the Struts, and, you know, there's, yes. a, there's this, this return yes. of these young 
kids that are basically taking years old. The guitar yeah. player's a monster. He's like Eddie. Yeah, Eddie was his idol. You know, so we're utilizing in the production. You know, some of the tricks that Eddie did. You know, like beginnings of songs, just the guitar and then mm. the licks and the solos are not just played out solos and melodic, really cool solos in the style of Van Halen. Mm -hmm. The songs are in the style of Van Halen. The singer sounds a little more like a Def Leppard guy. Yeah, okay. Uh, yeah. You know? uh, so it, it adds a little bit of a switch there. But the drummer, the drummer I met when he was 11, he won a contest. And he is in my Realistic Rock for Kids book, DVD. I met him when he was 11 and nice. his brother was six. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you've helped mentor them for a long yes. time then. Yeah. And then um, finally, like a couple of years ago, they sent me some demos and it sounded like a punk, a punky version of Van Halen. Oh, really? Know? Okay. And, I, and, I, and at the time, Greta Van Fleet was just coming out. Yeah. I said, dude, if you're going to go for it, let's go all the way. Yeah. Go you classic know, take rock Take away the, the punk element. It's the punk element had no melody. Right. You know, it was right. like screaming baloney melodies and the hooks so we changed all the melodies and kept the track and went more rock and this kid is a freaking phenomenal drummer now oh i can't wait you to know? to go and listen so go go have a listen they got they got the youtube things on it and we're just mixing a new song now and we did some cover songs and we've been working with this label and they keep saying that after this virus is over they're going to sign it nice know? nice so, nice but they want to have them on this show to give them some press, whether they win, you know, when, when whoever wins this show wins a $250,000 record recording deal with Sumerian records. Oh shit. Okay. All right. So, I mean, maybe they'll win, but if they don't win, they're going to get signed. If, if they're talented, Samaria, uh, you know, it, they're great. Yeah. It's like I said, there's some sort of, you know, rock and roll has died or appeared to have died several times uh, over the decades. And for some reason, it just keeps coming back. And uh, that's great. Yeah, it's just coming back differently now. Yeah, of course. Of course. The, way, always... the way it's heard, the yeah. way it's heard is so different. Yeah. I don't have a clue how all that works. Yeah. You know, yeah. How, these, how some of these bands end up with, you know, like I, I took a band that was, I, it was a, a two-piece band with a singer. And they were really cool. They were like a, a Metallica-ish kind of band. Mm -hmm. But it was <laughs> interesting with their, they were brothers as well, drummer and guitar, and a singer, which was unique. Yeah. They had no bass. No bass, yeah, yeah. They were like a, White uh, Stripes yeah, right, on yep. 10. Yeah, yeah. They were great players. Mm -hmm. And I took them to Atlantic Records and I said, what do you think? They said, well, they're really good, but you know, how many Facebook people do they have? I don't uh, know, yeah, 20,000? That's, that's what they, they go, can. Well, that's... you know, they need to have like 250,000 and, and like 500,000 on YouTube. So I said to them, well, if they have 250 Facebook, 500 on YouTube, what do they need you for? Right. And they said, well, we'll take it up to the millions then. Uh, I said, if you're oh, already on that rocket said, ship ride, you're going to, you're going to get there anyway. Uh, yeah, you know. So anyway, yeah. So they're still struggling to try and get it. I, I released their first album on my own little label. But again, I don't really know what to do with it, you know. And right. they sold a couple of thousand, you know. But uh, they're doing another album. And I produced the first album. They're doing another album. They're not giving up. Well, it's too bad you they know? can't be on the road, which is, you know, the traditional way of uh, yeah. like, building and they, an audience. And they tried to get on the road, but it was hard to get on the road because nobody knew them. Really? Yeah. I had another band in, in France that I, I put out on my label. I tried to help them. And, uh, and uh, 
and same thing. But but in France now, they they actually just took it to themselves and they went on the road. And they they made no money. They slept in the van. They did whatever it took. And now they're actually got got a bit of a following. They just got signed to a, a regular label, and they're going to release this record when this virus is over and they can get back on the road. They have a bit of a following. They can draw two or 300 people now, wherever they go. Good, good. You know, good. But, uh, you know, it's, it's really hard now. Yeah. It's the music business is, um, you know, it's, it's a sea of mediocrity. And because of that, it makes the really talented yes. difficult to rise above yeah. that. Um, yeah. You know, um, you know. Uh, again, I, I think that uh, you know, with hard work and uh, you know, constant uh, touring, even if you have to, you know, be in a uh, you know a van by yourself and in uh, the in the boys, and you know, go from town to yeah, town. You know, you know what the problem is like like when we were making it for a very long time, even in the '80s when bands were making it, getting signed. You go out and you play a gig, you get paid a couple of hundred bucks and you play. Yeah. And you, you know, now you got to pay the venue 500 bucks to play a gig. I mean, how does that work? Yeah. 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 You know what I mean? It's so difficult. Yeah. That's why. And, and there's I, I less and less venues this. too. There's, yeah. You know? I, I don't get how this works. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. I mean, I was lucky when I went out with, with Kiss with King Cobra because they were my friends. They paid us some money. Yeah. And people will say, man, you guys are lucky. We had to pay to get on that tour. Oh, I with said, wow. the Kiss tour? Yeah, yeah. Back in the 80s. Yeah, yeah. You know, so they've been doing it since the 80s. <laughs> you know? pay, pay to play Leave with Kiss. Them. Yeah, well, you know, it's Gene. You know, Gene's always yeah. about the, the, the bucks, you know, so. Yeah. I mean, I, like, I mean, they were friends of mine. All of course, guys. of course, of course. All right, one yeah. last question, and I'll let you go. Uh, you know, last weekend, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame uh, finally put its class of 2020 out there. How the hell is the Vanilla Fudge not in the Rock and Roll? Who the hell knows? I don't what do we got to do? I, I didn't even know that last week they did that because, you know, yeah, I don't, I, how am I, I going to know? Yeah. Yeah. Who's going to, who's going to tell me? Yeah. yeah. I didn't see it anywhere on the internet. No, it, um, uh, well, it's, it, it's tough. Well, we, we had, yeah, we actually did some advertising for them. So we kind of, okay, well, that. I didn't see anything. Yeah. I didn't see anything. I yeah. didn't even know who was inducted. Uh yeah. Um Nine Inch Nails, Depeche Mode, uh Doobie Brothers, uh uh Notorious B. I. G. and T Rex. Oh, oh, and Whitney Houston. T Rex. Yeah. Give me a break. <laughs> how well, how was T Rex warrant the rock and roll hall of fame? Um, you know, glam rock, uh, you know, we, we, we could go into a deep discussion on the possibilities of Mark Bolin yeah. and what he, he brought to the party in the early seventies. Yeah. But, uh, but, um, you know, again, how is the vanilla fudge not in the rock? Oh, it's ridiculous. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. Well, we were before the pandemic, we were starting a, um, a petition kind of thing at all the gigs. We had hundreds of people sign it, yeah. put a thing on the websites and do it. But then the pandemic happened and, you know, it is a campaign. About it. Yeah, there is but a campaign. You know what? I mean, these are, I'm sure T Rex didn't do a tam campaign. Well, no. Well, uh, no. I mean, yeah, Tony, so, I Tony mean, Visconti. I, I think, I think because you know, you know, you know, it's all political, and uh, yeah, it, I, you know what? It, it, I don't really care. No, no, I you don't need it. Did. But I, I it, would be, it would be nice. But you know what? If they're blowing us out. Fuck them. Yeah, but you guys should be. They're missing out. I know what we did. Mm. I know who we influenced. I know who we took on the road. 
I know what we had, what we influenced in this business. And, you know, from the horse's mouth, from the bands themselves, you know, and having somebody like uh, Vanilla Fudge not in it, that's their loss. No. Yeah, when, when you run into Jimi Hendrix and he says to you, I love the fudge. Yeah. That's all you need. And, you know, and you take Led Zeppelin on the first tour, you pay for them right. to be on, on the first gig. Yeah. You get their, their drummer an endorsement. Well, that's right. You influence Deep Purple. Yeah. You influence, you know, yes, you influence. I mean, uh, who have all admitted that. Had all, all admitted that. So. Yeah, when we did the Atlantic Festival, uh, 44th anniversary at Madison Square Garden. Yeah. Phil Collins was off to the side. And he said, I came off, he said, you can't, you don't know how much you guys influenced me. Nice to Phil hear. Collins. <laughs> nice you to know? hear. Yeah. And then, you know, Jeff Downs from Yes. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, singer in Yes. John Anderson. John Anderson. Mm -hmm. You know, just, just an amazing amount of people. How they can bypass Vanilla Fudge I just don't understand. I'm right with you, Carmine. Uh, that, did, did, did Alice Cooper make it in there yet? Yes. Okay, he made it. And guess what? He opened up for us too. Right. <laughs> you know? Well, Carmine Apiece, such a great honor to talk to you, um, especially about Jimi Hendrix and hearing some of those stories uh, yeah. for us. Yeah, I awesome. look forward to talking uh, more uh, with you in the future. Yeah, all those stories are in my book. They stick in my life for six drums and rock and roll. And, you know, I'm not, I don't want to sound bitter about the Hall of Fame. I don't really no, care. No, yeah. Honestly, I don't care. Yeah. You know, it would be nice to be in there, but, you know, we've won, you know, I personally and the band have won so many other awards. Long Island Hall of Fame, you know, the Rock Walk of Fame out in California. Yeah. You know, uh, yeah, for me, I think one day, I think one day, one day that's going to happen. It, it just has to. Yeah, guys. We're just on, so dude. influential. So influential. we're 70, 74 <laughs> years old. We know a lot. <laughs> you know, Vinny, a guitar player, is older than that. Tim Boga is very ill. Yeah. He, he's not going to see that. Uh, that's, you know, yeah. it's, it's just too bad. Yeah. But you know what? I have a good life in Florida and I don't really care. If it happens, it happens. If it don't, it don't. That's the bottom line. Gotcha. Well, thanks for being with us today, man. Thank you, man. It was really awesome. There's a red house of the yonder, baby. Lord, that's where my baby stays. Let's hear it for Carmine Apiece. Do go and check out his new show on YouTube called Hanging and Banging with Brother Vinny and uh, Ron Onesti. Plus, if you're a drummer, you have to pick up his seminal book, Realistic Rock Book. It's it's foundational. Um, and, uh, and as we, we discussed, uh, you know, a new um, uh, edition uh, will be coming soon. 
Uh, or if you if you want all the dirty stories, uh, check out his uh, Stick It, My Life of Sex, Drums, and Rock and Roll memoir written with Ian Gittins. Uh, finally, he just put out a new digital re-release of his 90s guitar, Zeus, uh, album featuring, uh, actually it was two albums uh, put together and now all in one, featuring some real heavies uh, giving helping hands. Okay, up next is a man who helped add a little more Latin flavor to the Hendrix sound, Gerardo Velez. Best known for performing with Jimi Hendrix at Woodstock in 1969, um, his first professional gig, I'll have you know, which he we just played a, a, a little bit of Red House from that performance. Uh, Velez is a veteran percussionist and drummer who's performed with many artists covering a number of different genres of music. He's also a common member and uh, uh, one of the founders of jazz fusion band Spyro Gyra. He's played with Nile Rodgers uh, and Sheik, Paul Simon, uh, David Bowie. Sir Elton John, Mark Anthony, Taylor Dane, a whole host of others. And he is a seven-time Grammy nominee and multi-platinum recording artist. He's also quite the entrepreneur with Gerardo Velez Productions, GVP, uh, that have been producing hundreds of shows and events since 1981, nationally and internationally, creating events, galas, concerts, festivals, you name it. Uh, Find everything at uh, GerardoVelez.com. And folks, he is a bundle of energy. I I am not sure if the guy ever sits down. So let's get up close and personal with my new friend, Gerardo Gerardo Velez, welcome to Deeper Digs. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well. Thank you for having me on your show. Oh, we're very excited to talk to you and talk a little bit about uh, Jimi Hendrix and all the other things that you've done in your life. So, you know, I, I, I'm beginning uh, with with almost everybody I'm talking to right now is to just first get the thoughts on, you know, COVID uh, in your experience and, you know, what, what you see out there, what, what it's been like and where maybe the future might be, you know, having a 50 plus year career in music all just stop in one moment. Well, that's an interesting question. It's a very poignant question, of course. And uh, I've traveled for 50 years, and I've traveled to Zika, Ebola, all the various uh, possible worldwide pandemics that have surrounded uh, all of us, Mm -hmm. and was able to safely navigate through them. Uh, Unfortunately, we didn't have you know, uh, the setup to handle it at this time, as you know, as most people know, although we did have a pandemic department, it was uh, closed. Unfortunately, it was closed before this all happened. So here we are in that state. The question is, 
I'm very angry. People say, you have a lot of hate, Gerardo. What's wrong? I said, no, I'm angry. Because in the 60s, I fought hard with the Young Lords, the Black Panthers, Egyptian Crowns in Manhattan, New York, so that people were able to vote. People were able to live their lives without prejudice, without fear of violence upon them. We fought hard. We got civil rights. We got women's rights, reproductive rights. Uh, and I felt we were empowering ourselves as a community based on the middle class, which has eroded to basically nothing today, like in most countries where there's only the rich or the poor. So what's happening is uh, now with COVID, I've lost many friends. My in-laws from Canada have lost their family and uh, you know their married families who we know, we know they're not our blood, but we're all a family. Yeah. This is in Canada where they passed away. And I have relatives and friends in the entertainment business who have passed away, who have gotten sick, and everyone across the board has lost their jobs. Everyone across the board has learned their means of productivity. Now for me, uh, luckily I have my event company, which I do special events. But what does that mean? That means I had to transition to using what is available, and that is the internet. I have a company that now creates trade shows and other virtual entertainment vehicles that can be used by people to create large Zoom meetings, to create their own environmental meetings. This is the way COVID has changed the music industry. The live show industry can return and it has to be done in a very interesting and clever way. It's not going to be for the masses. But for people who can afford it, creating what they do in nightclubs, which are booth service. So you create these outdoor booths. We used to do that in the Hamptons for my event company. I had a event company with the New York Stock Exchange, Mercantile Exchange, HBO, Comedy Central, and many other Fortune 500 companies. Basically, they want an environment created, which is a COVID environment. You separate people into little, you know, their own pods, basically. They're responsible for the air that they breathe within those pods. They were outdoors. It makes it safer. We still have to communicate. These things will eventually happen. Some of them are transpiring in Europe and other parts of the world where people are much uh, more concerned with their social commitment to one another. We don't have that in America. We do not. We, we, this is the land of the home and the free and the brave and don't take my guns. Listen, I don't want to take your guns but I'm gonna definitely wanna take away your AK-15s, your hand grenades, and any other military, paramilitary equipment that you have, because that is only for killing other human beings. That is unacceptable in any civilized society that I've ever been around or that I would ever like to be a part of. And I believe most Americans like that. What the internet has done, and it allowed the fringe on both the right and the left, I'm, I'm a Democrat, but we have our eccentrics and they have theirs. And now that fringe element has gotten to be the spokespeople for us, which is incorrect. But he who screams loudest and continues to scream on a daily basis, like the president administration, those on that end of his administration believe everything he says, not because of the individual, but because Trump is a basically a culture or religion based around the non-acceptance of the COVID uh, uh, pandemic. 
So to answer your question about how it affects entertainment, it's brutalized every industry. And the only one I know being entertainment, I've been able to make money in music since I'm, and entertainment since I'm six years old. And now to say, hmm, but I redirected it. Everyone has to redirect their efforts and bring it to the internet because that's where the money is. You want to go where the money is if you're going to have a career yeah, in this area living, right? or in any area. Yeah. So the internet is the equalizer here and it equalizes the playing field because it's bigger than money, it's bigger than politics, and it's bigger than any individual power. And we have to maintain it. Now, if you're into splinter net, which are individual countries now surrounding their own um, internet communities for themselves, like China has done and other countries have done, closing it off to the rest of us. Those are splinter nets. That also has been a reaction of COVID. Because of COVID, we're missing a lot of the evil that's going on around us. Believe you me. Yeah. Because we're so preoccupied with what's going on right now. It's the, you know, shine something shiny, uh, you know, move something shiny in front of us mm -hmm. and keep us occupied while the thievery is going on behind us. Keep them poor, keep them on at rest, and we'll keep them making the money. So now perhaps you may have a, a chance to get out of COVID with a plan, uh, a plan to unify the medical community because yes, science is correct. Science is true. It is not fake. Everything is science. The ability for us to communicate right now over the internet is due to science, is due to that, is due to algorithm, is due to math, sacred geometry, everything revolves around math but most people don't vibrate at a high enough energy level to warrant that. And that's the following of this president and present administration. They vibrate at a very low level, which allows them to be comfortable in knowing very little. And what they do know, it's easier to, con it's hard to convince a fool that's been convinced they've been a fool. They've been fooled, you know what I mean? Of course. It's hard to course. convince them that they've been fooled after they've been fooled. And that's what's happening now. They've been caught. You've been right. suckered. Right. And the money that they're trying to reach now in this present administration is only to support the campaign. 40% is going to the National Republican Committee. 60% is going to Trump. So he's milking his people again, even at the end now, when they think they're as patriotic as they can be, he's making 60% of whatever they're bringing in and putting it in his own pocket. And 40% is going to the, and most people don't realize that because they don't delve deep enough into what's going on and how the political structure is being moved. For instance, eliminating the department, the, the head of the Secretary of Defense. Now he can tell, he believes he can tell the generals, protect me from uh, leaving this. Don't let the Secret Service throw me out. That won't happen because the Joint Chiefs of Staff don't support Trump. They support the United States and they want to get it back to some sort of normalcy so we can deal with our, our, um, our allies around the world and do what we do best, sell arms. That's what we do best. <laughs> We're a war economy. We continue to sell arms to our friends. He's stopping us from doing that. We have to unload these arms to people. Either we blow up or we sell them for someone else to blow up. And that's the bitter reality of the American dream that has gone awry. So if we can get someone who can stabilize the internet uh, feeling 
uh, hopefully with, you know, a lot of people want to be happy, rejoice. I'm not happy yet. I think the battle has just begun. And I think the worst part of the battle has just begun. If we don't get the Senate, you know, we're going to be faced with a lot of, you know, uh, inability at, uh, for the next uh, four, hopefully eight years. Wow. That... Gerardo, that uh, that question definitely opened up a can of worms. Uh, but you made some very good points. Uh, uh, you know, a very wide scope, by the way, uh, uh, out there. But you know, COVID has pretty much touched on everything. I think yes. uh, is your point. And in some ways, mostly not good. Obviously, you know, we we've lost almost a quarter of a million Americans. Um, we've got over ten uh, million infections. Uh, you know, and, and, and that's not great. But, you know, it's funny, I asked, I've been asking this question since the very beginning with almost every interview that I've had. And at the very, at the, at the beginning, it was very negative. It was like, oh, my God, I, you know, hopefully this is going to be short, it's not going to last long. Uh, you know, and then it became, oh, my God, this is definitely going into the next year. Uh, geez, I don't know if there's ever going to be concerts. And, you know, in the last couple of months, I've started to hear stories like yourself. Well, I uh, reinvented myself. I came and looked at these other options that I could do uh, that uh, are actually working out for me. And so, you know, like all things, it's a double-edged sword. And, um, you know, while I think we all agree the world would be better off without COVID-19, um, you know, at the same time, uh, humans are an incredibly adaptive species and we have learned to adapt. And let's face it, musicians are an extremely adaptive species of the species of human. And so right. that's no surprise that so many musicians are finding, you know, their footing and are able to, to move forward uh, and, uh, and adapt to uh, the, the current situation. So that's great. So let's get to music here. Sure. You know, tell me a little bit. You grew up in New York. You know what? What you know? You said you started making music or started making a living at six. So I mean, music must just be you know in your soul from the time you were born. Well, I wasn't in music. I was dancing. Dance? I was a dancer. Uh huh. So my sister and I had a dance day. Yeah, uh, yeah. It wasn't uh, like Martha, a top yes. professional dance. It was just the two of us who danced at every event and won every contest. Mm hmm. And then we started to make a little money. Then my sister went off to performing arts high school because she was a little older than me. She was in the original cast of Hair. Oh, wow. Uh, oh, really? Yeah. That's Martha. Arts. That's Martha, right? That's Martha. And then okay. she went on to make five albums with Bob Marley and Eric yeah. Clapton and a lot of different people. So she went off and did that. And then I stayed doing uh, dancing, which got me through high school and college teaching dance and also uh, performing. And I really... As a, as a percussionist, I got my first bongos in Mexico at nine. And, uh, you know, I never looked back and just kept getting other instruments and building from there. And, uh, you know, my family, I, you know, I'm, uh, background is Puerto Rican and our culture has, is musically oriented culture. Yes. Music is everywhere. Yeah. And back in the day, in all cultures, that's how you communicated with others. You got together with dance and may I have this dance and so on and so forth. It was a it was a softer, gentler time to meet someone, and uh, and dancing was all part of that community. So I grew up in the in the dance community, and and I excel in that. I excelled in that area, and uh, so then you know I went on. I was in Catholic school, grammar school, high school. I went to a seminary to be a priest. Uh, really? Was, uh, yeah, because I want to help people. I'm a people yeah. person. Mm -hmm. And for me, I thought that that was the way. And this is 13. I went into the seminary and 
then my hormones are, you know, kicked in. <laughs> and I, you know, I was going, okay, this is really not for me. And the, the priest said, son, this is not for you. You know, you, know, you want to help people, but not, not as a priest. You know? Right. Right. And I said, you know, and I realized and now that that's why I want to give back. And I've been helping with, in a lot of different ways with charities, especially mm -hmm. uh, doing entertainment for various charities. But, uh, yeah, that's how I started. And then my first professional gig, I don't know if you know, was what was Woodstock with Jimi Hendrix. No, that I did the, not know that was your first professional gig. Yeah, that was the first gig I ever got paid to perform. Like I had a little group with my friends, but we played in. With Cafe Wild, we auditioned there. Van Morrison was auditioning there too. He had yeah. just come from England. Yeah, I, I didn't know. I just knew this guy Van. I liked him. Well, my sister yeah. also. My brother-in-law was Van Morrison's band leader during the uh, uh, what was that great album? The uh, yeah, Moon, Dance. Moon, Moon, yeah, Moon, Moon Dance. Dance album. And my yeah. sister was a backup singer with pregnant with her child. Right. So we all hung out in Woodstock. We thought our little Woodstock community. We can have a discussion about that. But uh, that's how I, I started with Jimmy. That was my first professional gig. And Woodstock was also my birthday. It started August 15th is my birthday. Really? So it was my 22nd birthday and uh, my first professional gig. So how did you get hooked up with uh, what eventually becomes the Band of Gypsies? Okay. Um, I met Jimmy at a play. Uh, there was a gentleman named Steve Paul. Steve Paul was the manager of Johnny Winter and Edgar Winter, brought them up from Texas. Mm -hmm. Jimmy was already a star and we were hanging out and, uh, you know, um, he brought, Michael brought um, Johnny and brought him to uh, the gig. I think that was just before we started working together. It was at uh, the Fillmore, Fillmore East. We were backstage and Johnny came back. Everybody met. And it was so simple because I, they were in the front of the stage and Steve looks up and he said, hey, Jimmy. And, Steve, and Jimmy said, hey, Steve, what's going on? This is, you know, he was so relaxed. Hey, man, you got to meet Johnny. He's a great guitar player. Hey, Johnny. That's what it was from the stage. And then the, uh, this is as he's going. Hey, nice to meet you, Johnny. So that, so Steve Paul owned a nightclub in New York called Steve Paul's the scene s-c-e-n-e -E, the scene you go right. to be part of the scene yeah gotta be cool seen. and all right, that right and if you work there perform there they let you in for free so i worked under the with a guy named kenny rankin beautiful you're a great singer and he wrote a song about me called velez if you ever had a chance to listen which i'm very honored that he wrote uh, about me and our experience oh, together yeah. but kenny i was also on little david records with uh george carlin and that whole group that's another story we could talk about but kenny got me in because we performed the steve paul scene and one night i went into steve paul scene with my friends i had my own you know i was uh i knew everybody in new york and i knew the whole scene really really well and i you know i had like a whole row of people with me and i was performing with rick garinger who's a dear friend of mine mm -hmm. and at that time he had on hang on snoopy snoopy hang on i think he was 17 his brother was 18. yeah uh and they were the house band they weren't the house band rick always corrects me he says we were not the house band they weren't the house band but they, but they were, were there. always there <laughs> they were there a lot in my coaches yeah i know rick but you were there a lot okay so anyway rick was there because i knew if he was there he was always a gracious guy and would let me perform. Mm -hmm. So I got up and Jeff Beck was playing. Jeff, Rick, 
and and his band, Rich Band, brother on drums, drums or bass, brother on drums, I think, or bass. Money, forget right now. I got to get all this stuff uh, recalculated in my brain. But his brother was in the band with him as well. After we performed, I went back to my seat and I sat down. And I got tapped on the shoulder, and it was Jimmy, and leaned over and said, hey, man, that was some great playing. Do you want to come up and play, jam when I'm playing? So I turned around and said, all right, man, let's do that. Boom. And, and that was it. And my friends, oh, my God, that's Jimmy Hendrix. You know that. I'm going, so what? Because <laughs> I'm 20 years old, and I'm creating my own destiny. I don't give a crap about Jimmy Hendrix. As far as I'm concerned, he's just too loud. And I don't know what's going to go on with this guy. I play percussive instruments. Where am I going to fit in with this dude? That's all I was thinking about. Right. Because, you know, like I said, I'm 20 and I'm on my own journey. So we go and we play and it goes great. Jeff Beck's like trying to outdo Jimmy and Jimmy's so cool. Jeff Beck's going, you know, because he's a blues player. And yeah. he'd dig into a note in Jimmy's face and go, and Jimmy would look at him and go, and play something really fluid and get him really angry. That's great. Then we left. We had a little joke about that going back. So he tapped me some man, I guess, I guess Jeff got a little pissed off. He tapped me on my back. And that was the beginning of our friction. So well, it, sounds, laughed, it sounds like Jimmy has a history of, uh, of messing with those British guitar players. Uh, you know, the famous story of uh, Monterey Pop where uh, Mama Cass uh, leans over to Pete Townsend and says, uh, hey, I think he's stealing your act. <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe he thought that you know, you know, thing was his, but maybe it was. But anyway, Peter Townsend then said afterwards, he said, "I'm no Jimi Hendrix." Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But he was. Yeah. But you know, I was gracious, and they were good. For, you know, they became they began became good mates, right? Mm. Um, so that's how I met Jimmy, and then Jimmy said, "Hey man, I'm recording over at uh, Media Sound." Uh, Media Sound, I was with the record, but Media Sound, you want to come over. Now, and then it be, uh, became a nightclub. Now it's a restaurant. It's on 57th Street between 8th and 9th Avenue. And uh, we went to record. In the other recording studio was uh, the Mamas and the Papas. You know, John uh, was there. And um, uh, the Stones were in another room recording. So John Phillips and Keith Richards, uh, we're dominating the bathroom because they were getting high the whole time in the bathroom, and we would go, "Hey, boom, 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 boom! I got a piss, get that one! Fuck yeah! I'm gonna tell you know." It was like that. So we recorded for ten hours, and it was great. And then afterwards, we went up to the lounge, and I'm, you know, we all smoked cigarettes. I'm out there spicy. So, so was, it, know, was this was this, this is great, Axis Bold as Love? You know, is that uh, the, the the album? No, 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 no. There's no, here's the thing. When Jimmy had already done those albums, we were the first fusion band because what he, as, and I'll tell you how, Jimmy said to me afterwards, he said, no, right. I'm breaking up the experience and I want to do something that has other music in it. I want, I love what you play because you add Latin, African, and you understand mm -hmm. rock and roll at the same time. This is fun. It's interesting and fun playing with you. I said, I felt the same way. I said, but I play acoustic, dude. You'll drown me out. He said, no, I'm going to bring in my buddy from the Army who plays bass and my other buddy from the Army who plays rhythm guitar. That will allow me, by him playing rhythm guitar, it will allow me to do other things, to not only try to just be me, to try to you know, move on. I'm tired. Yeah, yeah. Of you wanted to get me on the power trio uh, thing of the, of the moment, right? Yeah. yeah. Totally. 
And while we were doing that, Miles Davis was doing Bitches Brew in the studio with all the studio guys. I mean, I introduced Jimmy uh, to Miles because my girlfriend, I live with twins. And we had this other girl that was, uh, you know, of anyway, course we were you all did. together. All, you know, it's free love. Yeah. Yeah, yeah man. It's free love. I lived with four girls for five years at that time. But it was free love back then. So anyway, we were going over our house. And Miles lived uh, two doors down on 77th Street. This starts off the West Side Highway. Uh, West End Avenue, actually. And he uh, he calls me over. And uh, I'm walking out with the girls. He said, hey, man. Come on, man. What you got, man? You got a lot of money, man? Father Rich or some shit, man. How you get them bitches, man? How you get all them bitches? I said, hey, Miles yeah. Davis, right? I, I said, yeah, I'm asking question. you a question. <laughs> God damn it, give me. I'm asking you a question. You don't me back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's how we started. We got high together. So that's how we started. Our well, wait a minute. Well, I'm going to anyway, stop you right here. I'm going to stop you right here, Gerardo, because I got to ask a question. So, so the concept of Jimi Hendrix and Miles Davis coming together, that, that was that really going to happen? Here's the thing. Jimmy was in the middle of a lot of turmoil with Michael Jeffries yeah. getting out of his management deal. That's why after we did Woodstock, he had he was contract he was contractually obligated to do a tour uh, as a trio yeah. playing the hits to make the money and also to generate attention yep. to the music, right? So we were put on hold. He said, I got to do this, G, because, you know, there's no more money. Now, he used to pay me. He always carried at least 10 grand in his pocket. You know, but don't forget, this is back in the time yeah. of cash and checks. So who carried no. checks? You know, yes, yeah. you, you were sophisticated. Not a lot of credit checks. cards Everybody back had, then, right? You know, yeah. Yeah. yeah, there's no credit cards. And, you know, people ran a lot of, you know, you always had cash, but it wasn't that much depth. You know, today, forget about it. But then... He always had cash and he had a, always had this, like, it was like a fanny pack. It was pre fanny pack, fanny pack with 10 grand in it all the time. And that's how he paid. He paid me a thousand dollars a week. He did. And then, so with the Miles Davis question. Yeah. The Miles Davis question was they were going to get together and we were, you know, talking okay. about doing something when he got back. So he didn't get, he didn't come back from that tour. He called me, he said, I'm coming back. That never materialized. Miles went off, did the record, and then he was the first guy yeah. to break out doing fusion, which I later did with Spyro the group. Gyro, I was originally right? in yeah. Spyro Gyro, yeah. the yeah. best-selling contemporary yeah. fusion band. So we did a lot of cold bills with Miles, and he and I talked about that over the years because it was Miles Davis and Spyro Gyro building and what it was like. And if they would have got together, like <laughs> I said, oh, you would have drove them nuts, man. You were painting the ass. And Miles would laugh because I always told him like it is because yeah. it didn't affect me yeah. one way or another, you know, and he yeah. was a snotty yeah. guy. He, Miles definitely had an attitude. That's for sure. Uh, whereas Jimmy, well, Jimmy was yeah. far more laid back, right? Jimmy was a kind, uh, a kind, sensitive, uh, empathetic individual who was an observer more than an activator or an insider. I was the insider in our, in our hang. Because I knew all the venues and I'd say, okay, you're in town. I got it set up. Coming to pick you up. I'd come and pick him up with, you know, the cars, the drugs, the girls. And we'd go out and party. And we'd go from the Salvation to Angano's to this place to that place. And don't forget, it was a, it was like telephone. You know, so how do you communicate? 
I make a couple of calls during the day. I said, I'm coming by with Jimmy Hendrix. Have a table ready for us. So they would. So I looked like, you know, the king of the strip, basically. And I took Jimmy all around because he was, like I said, he was from Seattle. Yeah, that West more, Coast passive. You know, this background. was like, whoa, yeah. as well as I'm loving it at the same time. That's We always carry a little pen and paper to write stuff down. Uh, new ideas, songs, and so on. And, and that was the, the creative vibe. And if he and Miles would have got together, who knows? It would have been fantastic. And I would have liked to think oh, yeah, that'd be a yeah, part of it. Definitely, instrumentally, would have fit perfectly into that. So uh, I can see that happening. So so back to the, the Woodstock thing. So it's your birthday. Had you guys been there uh, before the, the, the Monday morning performance? uh the, like the night before i mean what, what you know tell me about when you yes. got in and we and, uh, um i was in new york on my the early part of my birthday then we drove up later on we went to a harlem for a minute then uh drove up with my with the girls and in our limo and uh we got up there and then they said everything is closed there's nowhere you can go and we said oh shit we barely got there because we had to go all the way around instead of going straight up 95 to get to uh uh kingston we had to go all the way and go up 80 and come around but anyway then we got to the house our house then they drove us in vehicles and some guys went in the helicopter there was a back road so you had the main roads coming in to the festival grounds and there was a back road which they brought us through and then they brought us up to a house. There was a house on the farm, on the estate. I don't know if it was Yasger's house or it was a house that we stayed in. And we got there like, we were supposed to go on at 12 o'clock at night. So we probably got there at eight or nine or something like that, you know? Uh, and I was there the whole time because it was my birthday on the, on the, the 15th. So I, you know, I was taking a lot of uh, stimulants. I was a you know, speed freak at that time. So I was doing a lot of methamphetamine and stuff and I didn't sleep for weeks. So I was partying the whole time and I was going down to the festival grounds uh, the whole time. And then I went back to the house and they said, man, it's freaking crazy, man. The band sound great. And I said to Jim, remember that band we saw in town at Tinker Street Cafe, that Godzilla Santana Latin band? They were slamming, man. So, and Jimmy would say, okay, okay. And uh, so then they drove us in, like I mentioned, uh, and we sat in that, that house for about basically nine o'clock at night uh, till seven o'clock in the morning when they finally said, okay, you're going to go up. But in between that, they told us three different yeah. times, get ready, you're going to go up. So, you know, we were a bunch of hippies dropping acid and mushrooms and stuff. And, you know, we, we'd get prepared for the, the show. And no, no, you're not, you're not going up. <laughs> oh, damn it. Now we're all tripping out. So we would be playing in the house and partying in the house. I'd go in the limo, go down, roll down the window, say, ladies, you want to come up with us? Come on up to the house. Then we'd go up and Jimmy give me the sign. I'd, he'd go like, yeah, man, I need some, I need some time. I said, okay, ladies, we're going back down. Everybody, guys, everybody, we're going back down. Get back in the car. I'd take, get to send everybody back and we'd have a little meeting. And, you know, he was a very concerned guy. Jimmy was about the music. Right. He was not a drug guy. I was the drug guy. Right, he was right. not. Right. Just let's get that straight. I always tell people yeah. he was a dabbler. He's the guy who yeah. and good to go. Okay, let's go. <laughs> and we were the guys left here. Right. <laughs> it's a table full. Everybody gave him stuff. 
and he'd go like this. And we all did. We go, wow, holy, yeah. wow, hash. I don't know what that is. You know, I don't know what that is. So, um, both of the time. So you know, uh, you, you got to play that gig, uh, and, and was that the was that the only gig that you played uh, with Band of Gypsies, or no? We uh, well, we played at the Woodstock Playhouse. We played at a club called Salvation. Uh, we played in Harlem, uh, and then I think we played one other place. So we did like five, yeah. maybe yeah. six gigs. That was it uh because it was an experimental band if you look at the if you look at our set list you'll see those instrumental yeah. songs like jam at the house you know i co-wrote i didn't get any credit didn't make any money off of it either because i was a kid you know i didn't know any better and when we sat around working ideas like a jam at the house i came up with that whole thing which is the mozambique beat and then we went into Jimmy's session with that. So, you know, we added to it in that way. So when you go over and you look at um, the various songs that are instrumental and the other ones like Isabella and different songs that are very instrumental leaning, it was because Jimmy had a rhythm guitar player that he felt would allow him to stretch out further in these new songs, which had a lot of jazz scores, and a lot of primal feel that the percussion was bringing to it. So Michael said, listen, you know, I don't know this kid, Jerry Velez, who the hell is he? You should be using this guy, Juma. And J Jimmy said, yeah, I mean, we met Juma, great guy. We all got together. It worked. So Juma brought yeah, you African have the Latin. influence. Yeah, you know, yeah, I call yeah. Juma the African prince. So the two pieces, yeah. You know, so he brought the African influence and I brought the uh, Latino and rock pop influence, you know, rock influence. Right, 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 right. So, um, you know, September 21st, uh, 1970, you know, uh, you know, you, you just filled me in on something. Jimmy wasn't much of a drug addict, you know, a drug dabbler. He rarely got in. But yet that's what everybody assumes is, you know, what caused his passing. And, and it seems like it's more complex than that. It seems like uh, you know, at least to us that we've looked at, uh, you know, he was under a lot of stress, a lot of management issues, uh, and, uh, you know, the guy just couldn't get a break. And I think it was more an accident than anything, wouldn't you say? Uh, well, yes. If you look at it from that perspective, yes. But uh, I don't know if you're familiar with any of the stories about Michael Jeffries and his involvement with a lot of uh, um, uh, shady people. Mm -hmm. You know, listen, there's a Cold War going on. Mm -hmm. The Brits are uh, spying on us. We're spying on the Brits. The story goes, he started Reprise Records as a front for British intelligence. Jimmy was his main act that blew up. And eventually he died mysteriously over the French Alps, right? Michael Jeffries, mm -hmm. never to be found, body never found. That's a true story. Anyway, the woman that Jimmy was with, Monica, who called me before she committed suicide and always said, I had nothing to do with Jimmy's death. I had nothing to do with it. You know, why am I, everyone's blaming me and death threats. I can't go anywhere. I said, Monica, you got to let it go. But what, ha what happened was, from what I'm told, Michael told her, here you go. Here are a couple of downers. Take these downers and uh, give it to Jimmy at the end because I need him for interviews in the morning. 
and whatever he gave to Mike uh, to Jimmy, uh, Jimmy was you know puked on his own vomit supposedly and died to death, you know asphyxiated, you know uh, um, yeah. basically drowning on his own puke. Yeah. Um, and uh, then she said that they put her in. She called Michael hysterical. They put her in a room. Now the from the time of supposed death to the time that the paramedic uh, unit arrives was a four hour time difference. Oh. And uh, so she was in another room while Michael's boys were taking care of stuff in the other room. Mm. Because just like Charlie Parker and and John Coltrane, if if your talent is going to leave you, you might as well kill them and that they're better, you're better off dead owning their publishing. So he was better off owning Jimmy's publishing because that would make Jimmy the icon that he is today. Because, you know, and he would be embarrassed the way people think about him right now. Because he was a great musician, but other than that, he was an irregular guy on an adventure of a lifetime. That's what he was, you know. But once he stepped on stage, he was a completely other individual. And we call that our altar. That is right. the holy grail. That is the holy place. And it moves from place to place. It can be in your living room. If we're performing and raising that spirit, that's our altar. Right. And that's what we talked about that a lot. What do you what do you think he might uh, be if he had survived today? Well, he's very intellectually minded. Uh, he had a very analytical mind because when we worked in the studio, he worked on all the parts. He would go in and and and, and work the console. Uh, Ed Kramer would set up stuff. Jimmy would come in and start them working on stuff, and go, oh, let me go back out and do it and redo parts and you know Mitch Mitchell where he. I mean, Noel was a, a rhythm guitar player and Jimmy played most of the tracks, he played bass, you know, he was really into the music. He taught me how to record. He taught me uh, um, etiquette in the studio. I came by one time with a bunch of babes and champagne and drugs. And He's like, no, no, this is a work environment. Said, on, right, man. right. And let's do it, yeah. bro. And he's saying, get them out of here. We're working. Yeah. I said, whoa, sorry, man. No, said, get the fuck, get him. Get, no. The first time I ever saw him, like, whoa, dude, okay, you know, he was really, we're working, man. And I'm going, sorry, man. I, I left and I felt really, it impacted me to this day. You know, it was the, it was the, my first real lesson learned as to business is business and the rest yeah. goes. And Jimmy was a, as I'm saying, even when we were, Partying, he was like, you know, go ahead, you guys party. I'm going to work on my parts. And I'm going to work with Billy and show Billy the part. And Larry, I'm going to show Larry the part. Because yeah. they weren't getting the parts at the beginning. I love those guys, but they weren't getting the parts at the beginning. And they should say that. So they weren't getting the parts at the beginning. And Jimmy was a loving brother to all of us. And he would stay and show the guys. And they nailed it. But it's because of that kind of commitment to your to friendship. And that's what he was about. So he would have had... He would have been one of those guys, like say Paul McCartney, who would just keep creating, yeah. coming up with brilliant stuff. He'd be working with animators. He would be working with, you know, in 3D, you know, and man, we were taking trips and thinking in 3D in our own minds. We didn't need machinery, yeah. especially back then, because we thought it was, you know, the jury wasn't in on drugs yet. And, and we were told that mind expansion would take your mind from 10% usage to 50, 60, 70% usage of your brain. It was like, how can I resist? And being ADD and dyslexic, uh, those kind of stimulants help me focus. Mm -hmm. Now they give kids riddling. Yeah. 
I was taking <laughs> that. That's Ritalin for me. That right. was. They didn't know what ADD yeah. was or dyslexia. Right. When I started taking that, I said, oh, my God, I can finally focus on one thing. So, of course, the jury came in later and we realized that's not the way to do it. But uh, it was in that innocence that we went after. You know yeah. what I mean, Christian? Yep. It was about that innocence of maybe, man, we could be a lot better than our, and the, 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 than our parents in the past. You mm -hmm. know? So, you know, we took the risk and a lot of us uh, died. A lot of us got brain damage and a lot of us succeeded. Yeah. So. Such is life, yep. man. So, and that's what I think Jimmy would have been an, an explorer to the end. He's a Sagittarian. Sagittarians are explorers. Right. right. I'm a Leo. Yeah. We, we're like this. We're fire signs, man. That's how we bond. Oh, man. That's, that's great insight. I really appreciate that. So, you know, Jimmy's not around, but there are still, a, 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 you know, a relevancy and a huge interest in what he accomplished in a very short period of time. You know, there are tribute acts that uh, are all over the world. Uh, you know, a, you know, a, a favorite of ours, I think, is uh, Kiss the Sky, uh, featuring Jimmy Blue uh, in the role of Jimi Hendrix. And I, I think uh, I, you're, you're very aware of them. Uh, I, I, if I remember right, I think you've actually played with them, right? First of all, they're the best in that, and I'll tell you why. Because they're not a tribute band, they're a recreation band. And Mike, who put it all together, I mean, he's really the brains behind it, God bless him. Mike gotcha, gotcha, yep. brother. He's, he's, yeah, man, because what he's done, he said, no, we're not gonna be a tribute band, we're gonna recreate each major event that Jimmy did, Monterey, Woodstock, I mean, he has a guy that looks like me, <laughs> a guy playing congas, and he had the congas that I had. The exact and congas and everything, everything, huh? Everything, the app, the shirt. He had a shirt made like this. I mean, attention to detail. And then you got Jimmy Blue. Yeah. This guy not only looks like Jimmy, first of all, he's a slinky little sexy dude like Jimmy was, and he's a left-handed, upside-down guitar player. Yeah. How, I mean, how could it be more? Authentic, yeah. Brilliant? You know, if he didn't actually meet Jimmy, I would say, you know, you are Jimmy reincarnated because when he gets up on that stage from all the other acts that I've seen, I look at Jimmy and I go, you go, brother. Because, like I said, there's a lot of guys that can play the parts, but when you actually look at them, that's not Jimmy. It's guys doing a tribute to Jimmy. They do a recreation. You feel like you're at that concert. You're living and breathing. Uh, the light show, they even has the light show from back then. He licensed the light show. I mean, the attention to detail is beautiful. So any of your listeners that are listening out there, these guys are fantastic. If I, if it wasn't for COVID, I'd be up there jamming with them whenever I can, because it's always a pleasure to play with them, hang out with, with the guys. And also they, they're keeping the spirit of Jimmy alive mm -hmm. more than any of the other bands I work with. I last year, I have a band. Hendrix by Hendrix. Hendrix by Hendrix. Yep. With Jimmy's second cousin, mm -hmm. Reggie Hendrix. We toured last year. We did several events. Uh, you know, in the spirit of Jimmy Hendrix celebrating the 50th anniversary of Woodstock. Right. But Jimmy Blue and Kiss the Sky are continuing that tradition every day. So I applaud them and, and I, you know, and I'm, I'm there to support them. How do we help them? Well, Gerardo, we, there is a yeah. lot uh, that we can do. Uh, you've done more than enough today to, uh, to help this on. You know, Jan uh, November 27th, uh, 
uh, Jimmy Blue and Kiss the Sky will be performing virtually. And uh, uh, we're hoping a lot of people are going to come and uh, get to see uh, what you've just expressed uh, in uh, what that, uh, that uh, band is all about, a recreation of the seminal moments uh, in Jimi Hendrix's life. Absolutely, Christian, because we're here, to, we're here to talk about Jimmy, you know, the exploration we did together, our relationship, and all that. So where does it go from here? You know, what happens to it after I go and all the other guys are gone, man? You're getting our interviews now, but it's those guys that are carrying the tradition. Yeah. And, and when you do a recreation style, that's like saying, that's the way it was. Yeah. You know, the temple that that guy just built, that was the temple that we worked on. You know what I mean? That's... That's recreation. I was working with them before because I really wanted to help promote mm -hmm. them, but I wanted to continue doing my own thing. So I went in continuing with Hendrix by Hendrix. Otherwise, I would have been helping uh, kiss the sky because I believe in what they're doing and I believe in, the, in that they're the future of the tradition. Well, Gerardo Velez, thanks so much for being with us on Deeper Digs today. Well, thank you so much, Deeper Digs. Best, we need you out there, Christian. We need you to document all this and to share this with your listeners. So thanks oh, a lot. I appreciate that. Thanks. Because he knows how to fix that groove. Ladies and gentlemen, mi hermano, Gerardo Reyes, I tricked you. Thought it was going to be all Jimi Hendrix. Okay, so I had to throw a little Nile Rodgers in there uh, with uh, with Gerardo um, uh, playing. Um, man, I just love that guy. He, he's such an infectious personality. I can see why Jimmy and so many others want that in their band. Please go check out Gerardo's website, GerardoVelez.com. Okay, don't forget, Friday, November 27th at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Kiss the Sky presents a live stream of their annual Jimi Hendrix birthday bash direct from the historic Bearsville Theater in Woodstock, New York. The world's greatest tribute to Jimi Hendrix, Kiss the Sky, recreates Hendrix's most iconic concert moments in full replica wardrobe and gear so well that they have had the honor of playing with all the surviving members of Hendrix's own bands, including Billy Cox, The Last Gypsy. There will be special guests, um, as best you can do in the age of COVID, but uh, I, I have some inside information. So please come and hang out uh, at uh, the virtual bearsvilletheater.com or you can go to uh, at Kiss the Sky tribute pages on Facebook for more information. I'll be there. Oh, and the Muses will be there too. In fact, they had the pleasure of interviewing Rosalie Brooks for Jimmy Month. So go listen to that podcast as well. Yes, the Muses and I will be there at 7 p.m. Eastern. So come party with us. Next week, I will have 
two deeper digs for you. We'll uh, we'll conclude our Jimi Hendrix uh, 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 month uh, here uh, just in time for his birthday, a little Thanksgiving celebration. Uh, I hope you're all staying safe and doing the right thing here. I know it's hard, but uh, we gotta we gotta try to make this uh, COVID thing go away. Um, but we got something for you to do in between, right? Lots of podcasts. Okay, up first will be one of Jimmy's oldest friends and collaborators, Billy Cox, along with John Hammond. And we will end with uh, guitar virtuoso Vernon Reed, uh, uh, Juma Sultan, and finally a chat with the man himself, Jimmy Bloom, before he hits the stage with Kiss the Sky. Come on back for those as we finish up Jimi Hendrix Month here on Deeper Digs. Until then, keep up the rockin'. Well, I came and Paul, the child of God. by Christian Swain. Produced by Christian Swain and Peter Ferrioli. Sound designed by Busy Signal Studios. Engineered by Jerry Danielson, Christy O'Donnell, and Leslie Barker. Find all of our shows, notes, and social links at PantheonPodcast.com. Contact us on social at Pantheon Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Tweet us at Pantheon Pods. All songs can be found used in this podcast for purchase or streaming wherever you get your great music. Please pick up these amazing tracks. Liquid bleach, liquid bleach, Clorox makes clothes bright. But what about these cloudy wine glasses? Add glass cleaner to my cart. Adding Clorox disinfecting bleach to your cart. What? No, for glassware. Clorox can also make glassware sparkle, keep flowers fresh, and remove chocolate, wine, all your usual stains. Rude. Clean anything with the versatile Clorox disinfecting bleach. Discover more hacks at Clorox.com slash learn. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 